The greatest appeal comes from the significantly increased range of capabilities mm. uh, and, and the quality of work that can be done in space. And it can be done sustainably so, you know. We just rely on solar power, and we use that solar power to create uh, a magnetic field or magnetic sail, as you like. And we use that sail to interact with the wind, magnetic wind of Earth, you know, right? To simplify things, yeah. So just sailing in space. <laughs> The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Guerrilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Hey folks, greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Spain. Today, we are talking with the folks from Zeno Astronautics, Erica Lloyd. Great to have you here on the show. How are Good you? Good to see you, Paul. Thanks for taking the time to join us. And Max Avashki, have I pronounced your name correctly? Almost, Arshavsky. There we go. That's that's how to say it. I'm going to have to practice that one. Apologies for, for messing that up. Great to have you both here. And uh, a big thank you to our show partners, to 1NZ, uh, the newly uh, rebranded Vodafone, uh, Two Degrees, Spark, HP, and Gorilla Technology. Now, today I want to delve into a little bit of uh, local news. We are going to be delving into mostly sort of spacey, uh, type tech topics uh, and a little bit to do with the, the broader uh, mobile world uh, and very, very keen to, to delve in and really hear about the, the Zeno uh, story, which I think is, is an incredibly exciting one that um, really only a, probably a, a, a small percentage of New Zealanders uh, know much about. So I think it's going to be uh, great to, to share some of that story. Um, first up, yesterday uh, morning, I was uh, with the team at uh, at One NZ as they announced their uh, partnership with uh, SpaceX and and Starlink. Uh, pretty, I was actually pretty excited last year when uh, there was the an announcement from SpaceX and, and T-Mobile that they were going to be uh, adding cell sites to the uh, Starlink satellites and providing that uh, coverage right across the US. But for New Zealand to be uh, you know, one of the very first uh, countries to also be signed up to that through uh, through One uh, NZ partnership, I thought is uh, is is pretty pleasing, and uh, you know reflects on just how quickly things are moving within the uh, the space sector. And uh, I I guess you would say for for uh, SpaceX with Starlink, they've uh, they've rolled out an incredible number of satellites, haven't they, Max? Yeah. A lot of satellites. You can see them <laughs> almost every night. <laughs> and thinking yeah. too what this means for everyday New Zealanders, right, which I guess the recent uh, cyclones and things brought up the stark relief of how essential it is to have access to 24-7 ubiquitous high-quality broadband. So good on them for, for doing it. Yeah, I mean, it looks like it's going to be an interesting journey ahead because that's their, it's their second-generation Starlink uh, satellites, so you know these things are going to take some time to to launch, aren't they? It's not uh, it's not something that that happens uh, overnight. O- overnight, right? So it's a lot of launches for them to be able to uh, deliver what's needed to um, you know to to work for New Zealand. It's good that we're starting to see direct impact of you know space exploration activities on regular regular you know citizens, regular people. Because I remember back in the day, NASA used to justify their you know budget by saying, "Look, the ball pen was invented by NASA, the Teflon pen, you know Teflon frying pans." But these days, it's much more applicable. You know, all of us will feel the impact of you know of exploring space. That's good. And obviously, just broadband access is sort of the first cab off the rank, right? There's so many more other benefits that that will come from this partnership. 
Yeah, and look, I think you know often that is that is the hard thing to understand is what does this new technology, you know, what is the what is the innovation, you know, one innovation going to lead to, and often it's it's not always clear what those what those next things are, but you know, over time they all become quite real to us as as we start taking them for for granted, right? Well, I mean, our, I guess our appetite and requirement for real-time information to support, you know, predicting weather, managing pandemic. I mean, Max, what else would, would, would be the benefits of this well, sort of... Earth observation and general communications with the planet, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, I had a, had a chat with um, Tony Baird, who's the Chief Technology Officer at uh, 1NZ uh, yesterday, and so yeah, a couple of things that some of our more technical listers might be interested in is that... Uh, these satellite uplinks that phones are going to be able to uh, use are going to be a, a 4G connection. So it's just going to be like connecting to another uh, 4G cell site, uh, albeit roughly 550 uh, kilometres away. Kind of mind-blowing, right? It, it <laughs> is to think that, that yeah, it can, it can just work like that. And I guess that's, that's one of the things that... To a degree, I think we're still getting used to as these low the LEO satellites, the low Earth orbit satellites, because you know in the past satellites have always been you know such a long way away, and for communications there's been you know big delays, and you know a cell phone that could communicate with a satellite you know needed a big chunky aerial on it, and 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 so on. Of course, that sort of stuff has has you know started becoming a thing of the past. Uh, you know, already lots and lots of uh, New Zealanders have taken advantage of of Starlink, where they've been in the area without you know, good uh, in, internet uh, you know, coverage due to locality or or what have you. Um, but yeah, this is this is pretty interesting. Four G connection. I think it's uh, going to use. Uh, it's going to sit on the um, eighteen hundred um, megahertz uh, band, uh, where where you know um, you know Vodafone have have uh, you know long had. Uh, had that allocation from from the government. Hey Paul, is there a swear jar for saying you know what the V word? Just well, said? no, I was actually talking historically. <laughs> you all right, see, all right, so you I was allowed out of to mention then. Vodafone you then. There you but go. you're right. Um, I have to. I, I, it's going to take a little while to get used to the, the the new name, but I think I'll let myself off on that one. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, they've, so they've taken uh, I think two um, five megahertz sort of slices that they're using. Um, now, what I understand initially is that it's going to take some while to, you know, build up enough satellites to, uh, you know, provide the continuous sort of coverage for things like voice calls and, and, and data. So initially they're talking about, you know, the starting point will be text messages and that's because you'll have a, um, you know, a satellite will pass overhead that will be able to communicate maybe every, you know, roughly every every 30 seconds or or, or a minute or so, uh, and that's going to that's going to come past, and so your phone can wait and can send once it gets an uplink. That that link will will disappear till the next satellite comes past. Um, but as they build that out, there will then ultimately be that continuous coverage. Um, Tony mentioned uh, two megabits per second. Now I probably need to delve a little bit more into that. Um, but it sounds like that these these cell sites that are going to be on each uh, satellite are going to have four, uh, you know, four aerials. So they'll be able to focus on four different areas of approximately 50 kilometres each. And so, um, you know, as these things come together and and are, uh, uh, you know, 
enough of them are covering the country, um, then we'll get to that point of having that continuous coverage. So um, that kind of opens up all sorts of possibilities, I think, at that point. Um, now, when I first heard about the, the, the sort of US approach to this, it, it looked like it was maybe, a, um, and maybe I'm being a little bit tainted here by what Apple have have done in North America, but uh, you know their satellite service is, is very much for emergencies, which is a really good use case. Um, but what vote of uh, what? Whoop, there we go. What one NZ is saying uh, is that you know those in rural locations that don't have coverage now will just be able to you know use the service on their on their farms or you know wherever folks might be to uh, to communicate day to day. So um, I think it's pretty exciting. Um, the other bit on that emergency type front is they are going to. Uh, once they've got the full service operating, open it up so anyone will be able to make a 111 emergency call. It won't matter what network uh, you're on, you'll be able to uh, get through. So, Well, that's a game changer. Yeah, I think uh, really, really encouraging. And then um, in addition to their announcement uh, around, a, around a similar time, um, two, two Degrees announced a, uh, a trial with uh, Link, who are also putting up uh, low or Earth orbit um, satellites, and uh, um, they're looking for a you know a somewhat similar uh, type of service. Looking at looking at Link, they're they're a lot earlier on in their journey of of, uh, of launches. I think uh, when I look, they maybe have have three satellites up at the moment. So uh, yeah, that's going to be an interesting one to watch in terms of how long these things actually uh, take to happen. Um, but hey, the more the merrier. And Spark is saying, well, we'll we'll be getting into it too. Uh, they're, they're they're talking to satellite providers as well. So uh, before we know it, this will just be something we take for granted and don't give it another thought. Uh, just like GPS, it's just there and it and it works, right? Uh, absolutely. And and wait till uh, Amazon come into play with the three and a half thousand or so satellite constellation they're prepared to to bring to market. Yeah, well, I think you know when when we've got uh, you know this growing sort of proliferation of of options, uh, it it will you know make our our choices in some ways more complicated because you're <laughs> wondering you know who to, who to choose. But um, you know then we get to that competitive aspect, like what we've seen with our mobile networks here you know, over the last decade or or, or so. Uh, you know, where the prices come down, we get, you know, better and better offerings. So well, it becomes be a commodity, right? Yeah. And, and thinking, though, about this proliferation and, and what we're doing with Zeno, it's really about lifting the horizon. Sorry, there are so many puns we can do here <laughs> in space, but thinking about, uh, about what this means in terms of a everyday commodity, but what countries, nation states and citizens themselves will start to benefit from the environment and space. Um, one of the reasons I was attracted to come work work at Zeno was the idea of the longer-term sort of aspiration as well. But these two, you know, news announcements now certainly certainly speak to the applicability and impact on everyday Kiwis, you know. Yeah, and look, I think, I think you know, it's really exciting to have, have you know, Zeno, uh, you know, within the, the ecosystem here in New Zealand, Obviously, there's you know there's a number of other other players um, you know some uh, that we you know we may never hear of because they you know they're smaller firms just you know beavering away uh, you know offering and and their varying support roles uh, 
Um, but it, it seems to me as though uh, Zeno has a has a pretty exciting opportunity. So we'll delve into that shortly. Um, the other bit of uh, a couple of other bits of news. Uh, we've had uh, 50 years since the first uh, cell phone call uh, took place. So that was uh, the the third of April. Uh, 1973, and then it was a little over a decade later that uh, mobile networks were were commercialised, and um, yeah, probably although you know New Zealand had service in the in the late 80s, I guess it was really into the 90s that we really saw mobiles pick up. But yeah, we've now got to that got to that point where again it's just become a take it for granted type of uh, type of technology, hasn't it? Totally. I mean. One thing I know, and you can fact check me on this, Paul, if you like, and I hope you will, is my understanding is that the duration of the average cell phone call has not really changed. So I think people speak on a mobile phone for around two and a half, two and a half minute is about the normal length. And weirdly, over that fifty years, that's stayed quite consistent. Oh, that's um, interesting. I I haven't really yeah thought too much about the little the, known fact. the lengths of calls. <laughs> I guess our habits have changed a lot, haven't we? Because we can you know we can transmit video and data and messages and 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 so on. But yeah, sometimes we just we just want to do a phone call. Or if you're like me, I take a screen grab of something because I can't remember anything. So yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean. We use it for that, then send it to each other. Um, I mean, fifty years that seems crazy. Uh, considering how much we use them now, yeah, and I—I I mean, probably many people wouldn't wouldn't have even clicked that it could have been fifty years ago because it—I mean, yeah, it, I guess for some that's just you know been taken for granted quite quickly. I was born into the world of cell phones. Oh, okay, <laughs> right, right, yeah, and I was born around yeah, you know around 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 a similar yeah. uh, similar times, and and I still you know remember getting you know my first couple of you know. Mobiles in the yeah in the early nineties and you were a bit of an odd one out. But w- what I found was it was one of those things that you wanted all of your friends to have because it completely you know just changed your mobility and organising social things and business things and so on. And you know I think we all figured that out reasonably quickly once once cell phones became a a more affordable uh, you know a more affordable uh, gadget to carry around. And you know, when I look back, you know, we we often talk about how you know costs come down as the technology evolves. And I mean, it wasn't that many years ago I was probably you know spending on my own mobile bill. You know, what what these days can you know can cover a whole whole team. You know, ten ten or more uh, you know people. So uh, we've we've definitely benefited from from the com- the uh, you know. Um, uh, the competition that we've seen and the commoditization of, of many aspects of the technology. Uh, and then the other news was we've heard about Virgin Orbit. Um, it sounds like they might be uh, might be at the end of their their run. Uh, it sounds like they've they've laid off the last large uh, majority of their team. And I, I think you know they've been interesting to watch because you know you, you've. Um, you know, I guess anything sort of virgin that's doing something interesting, and Richard Branson, uh, you know, tends to get noticed. It's a, it's a little a little bit like uh, uh, things that that uh, Musk does and and other characters. Um, you know, they're they're it's a it's a really big brand, and um, and it and it has been interesting to uh, to watch. You know, what Virgin have been doing from from a, a space perspective. 
um, you know, over quite a period now. But um, in terms of you know comparing what Virgin were doing to you know, others like Rocket Lab and so on, um, any any comments that uh, that that you can share? Uh, on on that front for us, uh, yeah, Max. Cool. Well, Virgin is, uh, as you say, they always they, they tend to come up with very interesting solutions, very innovative. Mm. Some of them mm. work, and if they do work, they work extremely well. Mm. And mm. some of them do not work. So I think uh, that's the case with uh, you know Virgin Orbit. And look, it, it's a very you know unusual way to launch something into space. Mm. You know, um, the the way they do it is they have a a Boeing, I think, spacecraft seven four seven modified, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And under one of the wings, they have a rocket, yeah, which they release, uh, you know, mid air. Uh, crazy idea, and and they pulled it off. They made it work. Yeah, you know? yeah. But they obviously have struggled to make the business work. Yeah. So I have a lot of respect for Richard and his approach in general. And uh, there's no way to know in advance whether something will stick or not like this. Sometimes you go and explore something that is unknown. You know, you unlock a new thing. Mm. And it comes with uh, unexpected um, rewards, you know. Crossing the Atlantic is one of the examples, you know. Who would have thought? Yeah. You mm. know, <laughs> we're now going to the moon. Uh, <laughs> so it may, it may come back with, it, with you know, with, it, with, it, with a reward. It may not. It may not. Yeah. But the difference between Elon, I guess, and Richard is that Elon, Elon tends to impress people with scale. So Elon does the, the same thing, but on, on an insane scale, right? A rocket, but look at the size of it, you know. Mm, mm. Uh, or it launches a, a spacecraft, but look at, the, at how many, you know. Yeah, Richard normally goes just something that has not been done before. Mm. Both have value in this yeah, world, I think. Yeah. yeah. And and you know when when we when we look at um, you know at at launching into into space, obviously we've. We've got you know, Rocket Lab uh, between New Zealand and, and and the US, and now launching from uh, you know from both. Um, it was interesting listening into you know some of the the comments at their last um, AGM, I think it was, and um, and I guess just sort of watching some of you know some of the other players in in the space. It seems like it's it's not actually a super easy. Way to to make money, right? It's uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really hard. really hard, hard, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah even uh, so, I'm not an expert on, on on the launch business in general, right? Yeah. But I'm in the adjacent industry, so to speak, and you know the the uh, the opinion or the rumor, right, that we have in the industry is that it's hard to make money off rockets, yeah. especially off small rockets. Yeah, yeah. You know? um, yeah, and there's uh, it seems to be an increasingly more competitive market as well. We see a lot of uh, companies trying to uh, you know develop. Uh, you know, launch capabilities, mm. and they seem you know they tend to get funding. There's something on on the order of like sixty to eighty companies they're trying to pursue. You know, mm. uh, launch mm. to orbit. And I think mm. that that is as uh, to me is one of the exciting things about Rocket Lab, and like there's so many people being you know trying to do something similar to what they've done, but they've actually they've done it and they've done it time you know time and time again. So um, you know. I think they've got that. You know, if, if anyone's going to, uh, uh, you know, going to do well, you know, in that in that space, um, you know, besides SpaceX, so, you know, I think uh, that on the on the launch side, they're, uh, they're they're making some some good moves. So I hope and, it plays and, and out well. Uh, hats off to Peter Bear. I mean, an incredible mm. entrepreneur, mm. and certainly has helped raise the profile of the sector we're in. Mm. They seem to have the right mindset, the team, uh, right? They seem to have the right mindset for what they do. Rockets are extremely, um, you know, risky. You have to do things very well. 
Um, so yeah, it's even though humanity has been building rockets for you know decades now, it is still very very hard to build a rocket that reaches orbit. Yeah, so good on them. Yeah, and uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be very interesting to see uh, to see neutron to yes. see their, the, as they, than electron. as <laughs> they 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 scale uh, they scale things up. So I think you know that that's very exciting. Um, but we're not here to talk all about them today. Uh, very keen to to hear um, about the the Zeno story. So um, maybe you can tell us a little bit of the uh, the the background and. Um, we can we can delve into you know some of the really um, you know innovative uh, things that that you've been working on. Yeah, thanks, Paul. So, been thinking about Zeno for a long time now. Maybe you know 10, 15 years ago, started thinking about this first, and I uh, was looking at the space industry and realizing that space is going to become more and more impactful, influential. It mm. will affect our lives more and more, right? As time as time uh, goes by, and uh, really wanted to understand what is the next uh, big enabling thing for the industry, right? So at the time we had um, we had uh, obviously uh, rockets that which enabled access to space, and at the time we were uh, we were seeing some companies attempting to commercialize rockets. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, uh, I thought, okay, that that's great. So that is being taken care of. But the value of going to space comes from being in space. It's not from the transit. It's from the presence, right? And uh, when we look at it this way, um, I was trying to understand what is the, what is the next. Uh, enabling thing. What is what is the bottleneck there? Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the, uh, you know, once you're in space, it's agility of your spacecraft and sustainability of that spacecraft that matters, right? If you can be there for a very long time, and if you can control uh, the spacecraft well, if you can point it and maneuver, you're doing very well because you can provide those services, right? And then on top of this, if you can uh, potentially ensure safety of that spacecraft from radiation of outer space. And if you could then ensure upgradability of that spacecraft, meaning that instead of you know uh, writing it off at the end of its lifetime, you could potentially consider replacing a camera on it or replacing a, an engine on it, you know, that would be uh, an almost complete set of solutions for an industry that is thriving in the long term, right? So with that in mind, uh, we started looking at you know so so what is preventing us from having those solutions and we realized that okay so once you're in space uh, you rely on certain forces to achieve certain useful things and we have a set of forces we've been exploring you know that Newtonian physics you know you push yourself one way you go the other way uh, we've realized that you know in space we have to really rely on something that is not finite because otherwise we we have to rely on Earth all the time you know have to get refueled or you know you know, end the mission prematurely and mm-hmm. so on. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing that uh, has been unexplored in space is the magnetic force. The force that is very simple, we all understand the force intuitively. When we're kids, we hold two magnets in our hand, we bring them together, they either yeah. turn each other or push on each other or pull, you know. This force can be simulated in space, right? Uh, a spacecraft can be turned um, into a magnet on demand, and then Earth happens to be a magnet, uh, a, you know, a big, big magnet. So... That force can be very, very useful for many things. Okay, um, provided we can harness it. And yeah. and has it been harnessed in the past? No, because we've had some problems no. with the technology. Okay, <laughs> so uh, essentially, to harness a force, you must have a magnet. Okay, simply speaking, but you can't have a permanent magnet. Okay, because if it's permanent, then you, there's not use from there's not much use from it. Okay? Yeah. it's going to stick to the rocket on launch, yeah. <laughs> so to speak. So you must have a magnet on demand. That magnet you can turn on and off, which in the, in the which in the engineering industry we call it an electromagnet. Okay. 
Okay, but to make an electromagnet, you must have a piece of wire and run some current through it. That's it. That's it's all it takes. The challenge has been is that the conventional wire that we've had so far has been very resistant, literally resistant to any current flowing through it, and therefore it is resistant to becoming a magnet. So, but in the last few years, in the last decade or so, we've uh, as species come up with technology that is called a superconducting wire. It has no resistance to electrical current flow, and therefore is very good for creating very, very strong and very efficient magnets, right? But it comes with uh, a few, you know, gotchas. Uh, for example, one of them, it has to be below negative 200 degrees Celsius in order for it to operate. Thankfully, space is cold, but it's not cold enough. So once you start looking at how to solve this problem, you see a few issues, a few bottlenecks. But it's a problem. It's a solvable problem. Mm. That's what we've done at Zen. We've solved the problem of creating an exceptionally strong, unprecedentedly strong electromagnet very efficiently, right? We have unlocked the entire uh, paradigm, right, so to speak. Now we have this force, which we can use for many things in space. And uh, one of the most um, obvious uh, you know, applications is to point a spacecraft. If we can point a spacecraft better than we can now, we can have better images, we can have better communication, we can communicate for longer, you know, and we can stay there for longer and so on. Right, so, so that's, that's your starting point, starting your first, point. Your first um, product is, is very much focused that way. So walk us through in terms of manoeuvring, you know, spacecraft, you know, pointing and so on at the moment, um, what, is the, what, is that, what does that look like and how much different is it when your technology, you know, this approach with, with electromagnets is, is applied? Does it make a little bit of difference, a lot of difference? How does, how does that look? A lot of difference, yeah. These days, <clears throat> the way we point spacecraft, and particularly in low Earth orbit, as you said, it's roughly, you know, a few hundred kilometres above Earth. It's closer than from here to Wellington. It's very close, okay? <laughs> when yeah. you think about it this way, it's very close. Yeah, a few yeah that's, drive. A, that's, that's a good, way, a good to, way to think of as it. As opposed to, as you said, back in the day, it was 30,000 kilometres from Earth. That's a geostationary spacecraft. Yeah, that's, that, that's kind of the, the that's, satellites that's we've been used to, Earth, right? right? Yeah, 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 it's a lot of driving. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of driving. So these days, it's 550K. Um, yeah, and uh, the, the spacecraft tend to be a lot smaller at this 550k altitude. Um, and they are normally pointed with, uh, there's not a single good solution. So there's a combination of solutions, right? Mm, it's mm. either we're squirting gas from a spacecraft one way and we're turning the other way. right? Then we run out of gas and then we can't do anything about it anymore, which is not good. Or we have uh, spinning disks on a spacecraft. If you spin a disk one way, uh, its spacecraft goes the other way, becomes more stable, just like a push bike becomes much more stable once you're cycling on it, you know? You mm, don't fall mm, left and right. Mm. Yep, yep. Yeah, so, uh, but those solutions, they're, they're quite, um, they really uh, define the, the, the size of spacecraft these days because they're normally paired with the, you know, with the torque rods, which is, you know, another subcomponent that is required to point a spacecraft. Yeah, so they're large, they're massive, and... Uh, they're quite limiting, but that's that, that's as good as it gets, really. They barely do the job, and that's why we're barely content with them as a, in, as an industry, you know. Now, if we use, um, if we replace that suite of solutions with a supermagnet, mm. we can remove, um, we can reduce the mass of that solution from forty-five kg down to four kg. Huh? We, yes, we can that, then reduce the size of a spacecraft from a change. few meters, yeah. which would define the size of spacecraft these days, right? For example, Starlink. Yeah. Starlink size is determined by the size of the torque rods, right? Which is a spacecraft pointing technology mm. that we use these mm. days. Uh, we could then reduce it down to 30 centimeters. Okay, all of a sudden you can uh, build much smaller spacecraft and launch more of them, right? 
um, meaning that more spacecraft, as 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 you know, more 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 bandwidth. More bandwidth means <laughs> instead of sending a text message, you can maybe do a call. You know, so it's <laughs> it's going to that's also going to bring down your your launch cost, isn't it? I yes. mean, all of the costs are going to come down if you can you can lighten that's up. That's right. The, costs, the, costs do come down, uh, and it is an appealing it's an appealing sort of uh, you know. Um, selling point for for the product but it's not the most appealing it's primarily the greatest appeal comes from from the uh, uh you know f- from the significantly increased range of capabilities mm. uh and and the quality of work that can be done in space and they can be done sustainably so you know we just rely on solar power and we use that solar power to create uh, a magnetic field or magnetic sail as you like and we use that sail to interact with the wind, magnetic wind of Earth, you know, right? To simplify things, yeah. So it's just sailing in space. <laughs> so it okay. Sounds pretty yeah. good. Th- thinking about it um, in terms of the use of these sort of super magnets, the way I understand it, non-technically if you like, is that it's a new fuel or a new force to be deployed uh, to help the aspirations of people in the sector. And in terms of Zeno, that's like how do you build life in space and and think about applications that don't just enable, you know, cell phone calls, but also consider what happens on the moon and then beyond to Mars, how long uh, spacecraft can be up there and how long people can live in those environments and the benefits that can be yielded from it. And what's intrigued me about Zeno, which is why I joined, was the idea of, of this patented technology in terms of the use of these superconductors uh, the pointing tech, the what do you call it, Mag Zeta One, which is the first first product that we're selling, um, is only one of at least a dozen already other applications, and there'll be more that we don't know about yet, but we'll find out. Yeah, Paul, we have we have um, IP protecting any use uh, any application of a supermagnet in space. Okay, and uh, how do you patent something like that? Is that was that a, a long and arduous process? <laughs> Thirty-five claims in a patent. You just start early. Right? <laughs> you start early. Say, hey, gentlemen and ladies, here's the solution. Could we please patent this? Yeah. And if you're the first one to you know to to think of this, you know it pays off to think far ahead. So, yeah, our you know uh, from the business standpoint, uh, you know. Uh, it's great to sell, you know, pointing hardware. It's really good. You know, we are currently sitting on sales on the order of you know, tens of millions of dollars. It's just in the first year, uh, so it it's good. But this is not why we started the company, right? We started the company to become the backbone of the industry, to really enable sustainable, long-term growth of the industry, right? We want to see, um, you know, space exploration. We want to see life you know, in space, so to speak, that is not tied to life on Earth as, as you know, as strictly as it is today. Yeah, so we are really looking to um, uh, enable new technologies in space, um, such as shielding of uh, spacecraft and crewed spacecraft uh, from the damaging radiation of outer space, which has been a huge issue for o- astronauts on the ISS, on the International Space Station, for anyone who is traveling to Moon or to Mars. That is currently an unsolved problem. There is no solution there, right? The best solution, even theoretically, to this problem is shielding uh, such people just like we are shielded on Earth with a magnetic field. Right? Earth has a magnetic field and it deflects the charged particles coming from the sun or elsewhere from outer space. We can do the same thing uh, you know, to a spacecraft in space. Called turn it to a miniature Earth, so to speak, on demand when necessary to how, ensure how safety. How hard is that going to be uh, to 
to, to solve, do you think? From the technological standpoint, um, it is uh, very solvable. So that all of the enabling technologies are accessible to us. Mm. Uh, it will require monetary, you know, um, resource. And, um, you know, a lot of um, courageous minds, so to speak, you know. But it's a definitely a very solvable problem. It's been theorized, uh, you know, for a long time. But finally, we have the enabling set of technologies and we have the IP at Zeno to do it. Mm. One of the things we want to do. So it's been, what, it's about six years since you started Zeno? No, I think it's our sixth year, yeah, 2017, end of 2017 we started. Yeah, yeah. And so what's that What's that journey look like from there to where we are now where you're, you know, you're starting to make uh, sales, in fact, you know, millions of dollars worth of, you know, sales already, um, you know, before you've, before you've launched. Um, what's that journey look like and then, you know, how, how soon till, uh, till your tech's going to be you know, up there in, uh, in, in craft. Yeah, the, well, start from the end of it. The tech is up there in a few months' time. Yeah, okay, so we are great. delivering our technology uh, this uh, June to our partner in Italy, and then from there we are flying to uh, US, launching on SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket end of this year. Yeah, so and then we keep shipping to our clients in the US from next year, from early next year. Yeah, and uh, well, it's been six years. My co-founder and I started uh, out of University of Auckland. There was a program for space systems. I think it may still be alive. Essentially, encouraged undergrads to undergrads actually, which is good for you know, it's mm. it's bold to encourage undergrads, not postgrads, to think about the future of space and you know identify you know the areas that need to be worked on. We participated in that competition. Uh, you know, the prize of which was to build your own spacecraft and launch it on you know, Rocket Lab's rocket, which was crazy, but we didn't get it, we didn't get the prize. <laughs> we landed second. <laughs> so that's why we went out and um, looked at the business case of it and approached Uni Services, which is like a commercialization branch at Oakland Uni. Yeah. And they gave us our first check and the second check and the third check. <laughs> and then we sort of started working with VCs from there on. Wow, um, and and raising venture capital, you've done, you've done a sort of a, a seed round. I, I saw that written up. You raised what, about 10, 10 and a half million. Yeah, 10 and a half million in the bank, and we have an option to draw another 10, which um, I think makes it the, the largest uh, seed round in the history of New Zealand. Yeah, definitely the largest tech round, uh, yeah, pre revenue. So, yeah, that's. Uh, so at the, at the time of the raise, we were uh, like four people. <laughs> we're currently 15, and we're going to be at, at 30 by the end of the next year. Yeah. And. Uh, Erica, you've you've moved across from the world of AI uh, to to Zeno. What's uh, I think maybe when uh, with Chat GPT three and four it became so mainstream, I thought, what the hell? And I look at some <laughs> hardware. No, it was. Um, I mean, my three and a half or, or so journey with soul machines is hugely exciting. Um, I was with Callahan, and and part of my role there was to encourage the commercialization of our beautiful science here, uh, the scale of it. And to be honest, I thought I should stop telling people what to do and have a crack at it myself. So I was fortunate to have those years with soul machines. And and then when I, I'd met Mac, Max and, and started to understand a little bit more about the aspiration of Zeno, the application of this technology, the known and unknown applications of it, I became intrigued. Um, and that intrigue led me to come and start working here with the idea of helping support Zeno's accelerated growth. 
And so what do you see as sort of the, you know, the biggest challenges, um, you know, for, for New Zealand's space, space sector? Um, and, you know, I guess you've, you know, with your role with Callaghan and, and, and other things that you've done, you've probably got a broader view on, you know, our, our tech sector uh, as, as well. Um, what do you think is most important for for us to be able to, uh, to do to, to to succeed? I mean, I can answer that a couple of ways, Paul, and 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 I think I referenced it. We invent, we have an incredible science in system in New Zealand, in the minds of people. We have beautiful engineers. We have a lot of uh, benefit and latent capability. Where we struggle, and I'm not the first person, I won't be the last to say it, is effectively scaling and commercialising this. That's the hard bit. It's the time it takes. And and we know deep tech takes, what, four to seven to 12 years to go from a concept, an idea in someone's mind, to actually being something that you hold in your hands and then the ability to go and sell that. It's quite a long journey. And there are not many founders who are able to access capital to support that. We know the government do a great job of offering, you know, R&D support, uh, and and I know that um, Salt Machine's benefited from that, and likewise Zeno has done. But in order to convincingly create, own and capture, and then uh, capture a market segment, you really do need time to commercialise that science. Um, and I think that's one of the challenges. But I think the possibility is there, and we've already had some some great success stories. Yeah, um, it's it does seem as though at times capital raising has been a big a big issue in New Zealand as well, right? I think it's less uh, less of an issue now. I think the government, also the market itself, is, and there's another a number of a number of funds that are addressing, you know, um, deep tech that we're talking about. And the slower to market mm. commercialization of science, um, because this is the only way that big problems are going to be solved, uh, climate problems, uh, the other issues that we need to address as humans are only going to be solved through the application of capital to these concepts. And so I think that that's become healthier of recent years. A few years ago, it was pretty grim. But, I mean, there's a number of participants that have, have uh, put their shoulders in behind them. And, I mean, some of it would be Elevate or the New Zealand Superfund and ACC and others um, and new funds that are here that are doing some hard work. So I think it's improving for sure. But, again, um, I wouldn't be going to do my job if I didn't say we could always use more and faster. Yeah, because, the, the, you know... The there's always an element where, if your pace isn't isn't right, then you're going to miss out on a lot of opportunities. Um, so, what does that need to look like? Do do you think, Max, for for you in terms of you know how how quickly that things need to need to grow, um, so that you're not you know missing out on on the relevant opportunities? Well, we are currently um, starting to think about our next fundraise. And then we're looking for something on the, on the order of uh, hundreds of millions and in the next two years. Yeah. That would be appropriate amount for us to continue the, mom- the, the momentum that we have. Yeah. 
So it's obviously it's a it's a pretty big market that you're going to be addressing over the over the years ahead. Then, yes, huge market. Industry yeah. is growing very fast. Yeah. it is currently. Yeah. I think the the it's around four hundred million uh, four hundred billion dollars. It will be one point two trillion by twenty thirty. Mm. Yeah. Now we see, um, yeah, New Zealand as as you know has now um, you know an incredible you know presence within the space sector. There's you know there's there's I mean very few countries that. Uh, you know, have done launches, let alone you know private launches, as as has happened uh, here in New Zealand. Uh, you know, very early to the to the to the game. Um, in many ways, having a space agency, um, but other countries are recognising these opportunities too. Any thoughts on you know, what government needs to do to uh, you know to obviously they are you know they're supporting the space sector, but any. Any thoughts on on uh, you know what's important to uh, to ensure that uh, New Zealand you know keeps the momentum and and, and speeds up? I mean, maybe before Max yeah. answers that, one of the things that struck me, being new to the sector, let's mm. be honest, and mm. hands up as a newbie, is countries globally are, are increasingly looking at space as part of their general architecture. So looking at it not as something exploratory, but something that they must have now. And we've spoken about that ubiquity or that utility already today. So I think the opportunity is not about uh, um, one of imagination, it's actually one of necessity. Mm, mm. The government needs, needs, needs to be more decisive. Uh, so the, I, from my understanding, the government was decisive at the time when Rocket Lab was uh, you know, needed the government to be decisive, yes. and therefore we created yep. the space agency thanks mm-hmm. to... Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, largely to Peter Crabtree, uh, who was at the time leading the space agency. Mm-hmm. He's currently, we, currently we benefit as our board chair. He's yeah. currently mm-hmm. chairing our board, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, w- I think the government lost the momentum. Like the agency is not moving fast enough, and there isn't enough support for the industry. Mm-hmm. So, so we had a lead. We had a we had a yeah. little bit of a head start there, right? Yeah, yeah but it's it's e- easily lost <laughs> if uh, if we don't. Yeah, keep that keep that focus and keep that momentum, um, which is hard because governments are uh, balancing and juggling all sorts of uh, all sorts of things. And I think often that the, the news that you shared in, in the beginning of this conversation um, speaks to how important it is, though. Hmm. You know, we've got a long, spiny country. It's hard to navigate, and the ability to draw resource from the skies to support what we need. It's massively compelling when we think of the number of services potentially that can be delivered this way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as I said earlier, Paul, uh, we, I mean, we, we do take pride in signing this contract, which is a great achievement. But I see it as, as, as an entrepreneur, the way I see it is you know, what would have been the country launch, launching the Starlink ourselves? This, you know, it's not something that is impossible for us to achieve as a nation. We should think bigger and we should move faster. I yeah I agree I, I I don't know how you know exactly how we do it obviously you know we've we've got to support um, you know the those uh, like yourself that uh, that have that have got the innovative ideas and and uh, creating the the businesses that can put New Zealand on the map and you know I think there's there's that challenge that governments have between sort of looking at the here and now you know, the short-term thinking rather than the futurist thinking. And you have to have both. You have to address the, the issues that we have right now and here today. But I think we have that 
that challenge of um, of the longer term thinking that doesn't necessarily win you know votes in the short term, but is the right thing to do for you know for the the longer term future. But I mean, uh, Zealand, Paul, right? think about it though. The future thinking it, it, it lands in your lap, and no time flat. Um, what seemed like pipe dreams are actually complete realities, and and it seems crazy now when you brought up fifty years ago since the first cell phone, and mm-hmm. and I mean that that seems unthinkable at the time that all of us would be using this technology all the time and every day. Well, let's. Uh I want to wish you luck, and let's hope uh, you know we can we can see more of these sorts of things you know coming out of New Zealand. Um, yeah, I don't know what all the possibilities are, but um, is, are there any other things that you can you can share, Max, on you know what what you think the opportunities are for uh, you know both for Zeno and and for for New Zealand within the sector? I mean, Zeno is, on, is, is at the start of its journey, mm-hmm. so we're only just you know just starting to gain traction. Um, for New Zealand, though, um, I mean, the nation should realize we, we should realize that you know space is going to be uh, um, controlling our lives. Mm. Uh, you know, space exploration is going to be controlling our lives largely. Mm. Uh, you know, and that's that's an industry that 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 is currently uh, in its development stages. It's not too late yet uh, to act on it. Mm. You know? mm. But we certainly don't don't want to be dependent on those who have you know. Explored space and you know invested into it, and then you know just be just sort of you know be in their hands. It doesn't need to be that way. Yeah. And so maybe um, you know having a seat at the table, which is what we did in the early days, is something that we should take seriously about thinking of the consequences, ethics, as well as the use of space, um, and thinking that it's important for New Zealand to have a voice mm. in those mm. conversations mm. too. And. Uh, are there any you know any other challenges we we have from just from being down here versus being in the US or uh, in other locations? Is you know have we got advantages being down here, disadvantages, or does it not uh, you know make much different from a sort of competitive I perspective? I have an unpopular opinion. This, it doesn't change anything. You know, it's all mindset. <laughs> That's, there's no advantage or disadvantage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Get in, get it yeah. done. That's great. Oh, well, thank you both for for joining the New Zealand Tech Podcast today. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, very exciting, and um, it's great to catch a, a little glimpse of of some of the possibilities of uh, where things can head uh, with Zeno and uh, and you know, I guess that 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 bigger picture of of what uh, what might be possible. Uh, in the year in the years ahead and of course thank you to our show partners uh 1NZ 2 degrees Spark HP and Gorilla Technology uh and thanks everyone for joining us on the show and uh, listening in we'll look forward to catching you again uh next week on the next episode see ya thanks Paul see ya the New Zealand Tech Podcast brought to you by Gorilla Technology proactive and strategic IT